0: Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artists Podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I am so delighted to say that today we will be discussing the incredible British pop artist Pauline Bote. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, with each piece corresponding to one of the poets' 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www.alighieri.com. Alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week their founder Rosh Matani will be giving us an insight into Alighieri and I hope you enjoy this episode. As of March the 4th 2021 there have been reports of static in the Alighieri atmosphere. Strange forces seem to be at play. The static has begun to cause delays and miscommunications in our frequencies. In the hours after the first incident, our internal team began to investigate the root of the phenomenon. Later that day, a passerby stumbled across what we believe to be fragments from the Alighieri skies. These fragments are radiating unknown energies whose long-term effects are unclear. Stay tuned to the Alighieri Instagram for live updates on what we think might be connected to the launch of the Autumn Winter 21 collection. Hello everyone and welcome to The Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the renowned feminist art historian and pop art expert Dr. Sue Tate. Having spent a lifetime as a feminist activist, educator and art historian, activities she sees as mutually informing, Dr. Sue Tate has been instrumental in resurfacing the extraordinary lives and works of female artists back into cultural visibility. A trustee of the Feminist Archive South, a visiting research fellow at the University of the West of England, a freelance art historian and a member of the Monica shoe Curatorial Collective, Sue's art historical work has centred on women pop artists, the subject of her PhD completed in 2004 by giving papers, publishing catalogue essays on the likes of Evelyn Axel to Marjorie Strider, countless book chapters and advising on women artists for overview pop art exhibitions. Most notably was her contribution to the groundbreaking and game-changing exhibition, Seductive Subversions, Women Pop Artists, 1958-68, that toured around America between 2009-10, as well as writing for the accompanying comprehensive book. As thanks to her work in this book, no pop art curator could claim that they didn't know of the women artists who trailblazed the movement and rightly fought for their place in the story of art. But the reason why we are speaking with Sue today is because the predominant focus of her incredible career has been on Pauline Boaty, the vivacious, electric, energising pop art icon. Because without Sue's work conducting important primary research starting in the early 90s when Boaty was barely known in 1998 co-curating for two London galleries the first solo exhibition of her work in the UK for 35 years in 2013 curating a major retrospective of her work at Wolverhampton Art Gallery that talked to Pallet House in Chichester and also to Lodge in Poland and authored the brilliant accompanying book Pauline Boaty, Pop Artist and Woman we would not have known about this brilliant, important and formative artist and that is why I am so excited to say that she is the artist we will be discussing today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sue Tate. How are you doing today?
1: Really well, thank you. Despite all the lockdown difficulties that we have in the UK at the moment, I'm very grateful to be invited and honoured, in fact, to be part of this wonderful podcast series. Thank you oh for my inviting goodness.
0: me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honour to speak to you, and thank you for all your incredibly important work. So, this has got to be one of the most fascinating and brilliant artist from the 20th century. Yes, but also a person and also a story about how this young pioneering woman from Croydon took the pop movement by storm and was somehow forgotten from art history. I mean, I have only come to know Boti's work, and thanks to you, in the past few years. And what I love about it is that everything, you know, her, her work, everything, seems to embody the complete essence of the movement. I mean, she was clearly a hell of a lot of fun and just a delight. So I want to get into her in a second. But I mentioned in the introduction you began researching her in the 1990s and state The show that was the first in 35 years. I mean, where did you start? When did you first hear about Pauline Boaty?
1: Well, the story really starts in 1991 when the Royal Academy put on a huge show of pop art. It had masses of attention in the media and, and on oh, the telly wow. and so on. But as I went round, I saw lots of images of objectified, sexualized women. But out of 202 pop art works, only one was by a woman.
0: No. And I
1: just started thinking, what's going on here? You know, pop is relating to mass culture. Women are spoken to in mass culture, in advertising and so on. Women enjoy mass culture, fashion, dancing to pop music. (laughs) Why are there no women's voices in here? And at the time, I was looking for an MA subject, and initially, I was just looking more at the institutions of is the ways in which women have been excluded from this movement. How do we understand this? And of course, as with almost every area of art history, once you start looking at Of course, there were women who made names for themselves. So I started following up a few names. And then in 1993, David Alan Meller curated a show at the Barbican called The Sixties Art Scene in London. Now, he was interested in Pauline Boaty and... Very little work was known. Nothing had been exhibited in the UK for 30 years. And he went on a great journey exploring where was the work and found it in an outhouse on a farm that belonged to Boaty's brother and rescued it from there, had it restored and put it in two or three pieces into this exhibition at the Barbican, which I saw. And clearly here was something exciting and something I really wanted to follow up. So I carried on researching other women pop artists as well, but the focus became Pauline Boatey. Dave Mello was enormously generous, shared all his contacts and addresses and, and other information and off I went on a fantastic <laughs> journey of discovery. It was wow. just enormous fun. So I interviewed, I think, about 68 different people.
0: Oh, my gosh. And it's
1: such wonderful stories from the 60s and so on. Yes. Discovered work that was held all in in private collections at this point. There was nothing in the public domain. And so in 1997, I got an Arts Council grant to get all the work photographed. And we spent a week traveling around the home counties, mostly, visiting all the homes getting the work out. I'd also like to say that it was Elsie Green at Women's Art Library now at Goldsmiths who yes. facilitated this. So it was very much sort of joint effort among feminist historians yeah. and actually handling and seeing and oh yes we've got a sketchbook here so 24 oh. pages of sketches. Oh my god! And that, another point when I was on this phone, there were various pieces that I knew that they didn't but then she said oh I think there's something down here behind the sideboard. She reaches <laughs> behind the sideboard and there's a terrible <laughs> noise and <gasps> out comes an oil painting a self-portrait no. which fortunately managed to come out unscathed so oh that was a gosh. really really exciting time <laughs> and all the stories that started emerging and finding the work and then in 90, as you said, 1998, there in which galleries put on a proper retrospective. They were selling work, of course, but they allowed me to put in a lot of work that wasn't for sale. Yeah. And a lot of the people who owned them very generously just loaned them. And that was tremendous. It got media attention. So it was just really exciting. And I really felt, <laughs> yes, there is something going on here with this person, this work, which will expand how we understand
0: pop. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you then track all these works down? I mean, it was it about sort of reaching out to people, writing letters, looking at her letters?
1: Mostly it was following up, writing letters, contacting people, then they'd give me other contacts. But what was interesting at the time was how she was received. Although there was this interest, the Tate Gallery reserved three paintings from that exhibition, but they only bought one in the end, and that was oh. the only blonde in the world, which is a yeah. picture of Marilyn Monroe, which is a lovely piece. Yeah. But it was the piece that would fit into the male story of art. another picture of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. The two that they rejected and wouldn't buy which was With Love to Jean-Paul Balmonde, where you've got a woman having a desiring gaze onto a male object of <gasps> sexual desire. Yeah. And they rejected It's a Man's World, which is <gasps> a later no. painting, which, of course, is totally declamatory. But
0: that's such a good one. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And a lot of people at the time said to me, as I was getting stuck into, you know, researching and writing and doing papers, oh, but surely pop is inevitably masculine. You know, <gasps> all those pinups and cars. Why bother? It doesn't matter. You know, it's oh my not God, significant. why bother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just leave it to the boys kind of thing. And I just felt that wasn't good enough. I tried to get a book contract with Simpson Hudson, who wrote back telling me that women pop artists just wasn't a subject.
0: Oh my God. That's yeah. Like. Blast Us. <laughs> And I mean, so when you did discover these works, I mean, how did it make you feel? I mean, was there one in particular that really drew you to her work?
1: Yeah, the ones that I discovered myself rather than the ones that I'd seen in Barbican. That's just so exciting to see a yeah. pop language making that point. You know? But I think the one that I, I like most was in a kitchen in a big farmhouse in Suffolk. Portrait of Derek Marlowe with unknown ladies. I love that piece. And he's looking straight in the eye with that. First glance of their connection and sexual suggestion it's so seductive, but at the top of the picture is a band where four rather grotesque women 's faces, and they are the unknown ladies. So what we have in one picture is that sense of sexual pleasure, excitement, yeah. anticipation, and a gendered critique it 's yes. absolutely about the imbalance of power in the context of the 60s.
0: I love that. And I love the fact that it's completely controlled by Bote's gaze as well, that, you know, there is yes. that kind of fourth dimension in a way in this, in this mm-hmm. work. This is absolutely fascinating. I want to get back into the 60s in a moment. But first, I'd love to go back to Bote's life. I mean, she was born the youngest of four children and the only girl in Croydon in the spring of 1938. I mean, tell me about Bote's upbringing. I mean, was art something that was always present? Who were her family?
1: Her life seemed to be incredibly conventional, sub- Her suburban dad was an accountant, mum was a housewife, and yet there's a lot of things that are much more unusual in that, in that her dad had actually been born in Persia, and his own father was a Belgian seafaring captain. But in 1913, Boaty's grandfather died as a result of his ship being attacked by pirates and the mother was left with no support. So both his father and his brother were sent off to a seminary in the Himalayas. And then in 1920, we don't know quite why, and they were sent instead to a Catholic college in Harrogate in England. So this extraordinary, disturbed, upsetting childhood for her father. And what he did was he decided to build a very artificial life of absolutely... Solid, conservative Britishness.
0: Am I right to think that they had, they had tea every single day at 4pm with sort of corned yes. cucumber sandwiches and fruitcake because they were sort of wanted to be that English? Yes, and
1: <laughs> apparently friends commented on that their house was more English than anybody else. But <laughs> I think everybody in the family was very aware that this was quite a construction, and I think it does feed yes. into voted understanding of performativity, yes. which, of course, is part of the sort of pop thing. Now, her mother... Again, seems like just an ordinary housewife, but she had got a place at the Slade Art School. Oh, my God. And her father wouldn't allow her to go. So that was a deep regret of hers. And of course, she did support Pauline in her ambition to go to art school. Yeah, She was the youngest of four, an older brother, Arthur, and then twins, John and Albert. And even Arthur says that they were terrors. They would tease her <laughs> to distraction. And she really had to stand up to them. And also her father was a, quite a misogynist, tough man. And she had to stand up to him as well. And then when she was 11, her mum, Veronica, succumbed to tuberculosis which oh at the time was a terrifying disease. And our yeah. had died of tuberculosis oh no. not that long before. And the family kind of went into chaos. The brothers found this very distressing when I interviewed them. But yeah. Boti said in an interview with Mel Dunn that this was when she started grabbing her freedom she just took freedom out of the chaos and so she would go to parties and maybe stay out all night and it was then that their Catholic upbringing just stopped really so I think her background was actually more unusual than the surface would appear but also very much very formative to the kind of person she could be
0: yeah I love that also as a sort of comparison with pop art as well you know all that kind of sort of seeps beneath the surface you're almost kind of blinded by celebrities and the outset and the sort of cinematic screen and then actually what lies beneath this, it's so rich it's so deep and I mean so you know in 1954 she went on to study at Wimbledon on a scholarship what was this like I mean was her dad supportive of this no
1: her dad didn't want her to go at all and oh, um, no. she had to fight tooth and nail <laughs> to get permission to go and in the end I think he gave way because she was just a mere girl It didn't matter. She'd get married and settle down. Whereas her brother, he wouldn't allow her brother to go to art school and he had to join the accountancy firm. So interestingly, that in some ways, gender at that point benefited her route into art school but yeah she got the scholarship to Wimbledon everywhere she was greeted and all the interviews I did so beautiful so stunning (laughs) so gorgeous so vivacious she was known as the Wimbledon Bardot she was a tall (laughs) figure with a fabulous head of blonde hair either in a ponytail or a thick plait over her shoulder a a glamorous figure seen as witty and clever and sexy and outrageous Um, and also deeply serious I mean, it's interesting. I did an interview with a fellow student who only knew her at Wimbledon and stressed how she would talk about how she wanted to be a serious artist, that she yeah. had ambition, that the other girls were there just to get married. And she felt that women were badly treated and should do more, should achieve more. So right from age 16, wow. she is already very clear about her yeah. ambition And also about the inequality between men and women. And this is something else she got from her mum. Apparently her mum used to use the phrase it's a man's world and shout at the radio (laughs) in the privacy of her kitchen. So she wouldn't do it in front of Dad. But so she was really serious. She was well read. She really knowledgeable about modernist art, she went to Paris and visited things, she read Priest and (laughs) Quamble and later students at the Royal College of Art were amazed that she'd actually read Priest, (laughs) you know, other people had it on the shelf but she actually read it. I love
0: this idea that she's this kind of leggy blonde just kind of walking through the corridors and these men just dropping their feet. Yeah,
1: absolutely, (laughs) that's how they recorded it. But then the other thing that was interesting was that she was really lucky at Wimbledon and you had to choose an area to go into and fine art painting although that's what she really wanted to do was very staid very Houston school very brown painting okay, okay. whereas Stain glass had this wonderful young tutor Charles Carey yeah. who taught Stain glass. but in many ways he really helped her career. He was married to an artist Jennifer Carey he'd been trained by Germaine Ristier you have real respect for women as yeah. artists, which was unbelievably rare. Interesting, though, she was also bringing in iconography that was quite female. So there were manicured hands roses that became a dominant image of female sexuality for her lace. So also making it quite feminine.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I love stained glass as a medium. I mean, the NPG, the National Portrait Gallery here in London, has an absolutely beautiful work. It's called Portrait. And it's just, it's almost quite sort of pre Raphaelite or aesthetic movement. Like, mm. then also there's something so modern and there's something so kind of defiant about her gaze. I urge everyone to look this up. And it's kind of pillared by these beautiful frames in a way. And it's such an interesting thing, you know, she had this kind of, I guess, unusual route. And also you can see with stained glass, there is that kind of collage. But I mean, this was the RCA in, you know, late 50s and 60s. I mean, such an exciting time. Already kind of pop in the UK had very much been brewing. There was this big exhibition called This Is Tomorrow, Whitechapel Gallery, that really kind of cemented the British movement. But I mean, at the RCA, I mean, who were her contemporaries? What was it like in the 50s there? So
1: when she left Wimbledon, she she was in fine fetal, very confident, very excited. But why she went into stained glass, she really wanted to go into painting. That was her desire. But it was really hard for anyone to get into the Royal College of Art and painting at the highest kudos. And she was advised, and I got this from her brother and from others, not to try her painting because it would be too difficult for a mere girl. Oh. Now, that was the opinion. And so she went into stained glass to be sure of getting a place. But I did some digging onto the shaping of the college at the time. And in 58, when she applied for and then went to uh, the Royal College, 32 students graduated from painting. Only eight were women. But by the college's own standards, they clearly had to be better than the men. Because half of those eight women, four of them got first class degrees. Wow. And only three out of the 24 men got first so we can see that it really was harder by the college's own standards you had to be first-class material so there she was in stained glass she had very good contemporaries there but it was quite separate from the other schools because it was before the main building had been built it came later and so they were all dotted around in those big houses uh, near the albert hall other contemporaries though in painting were peter blake who'd been in, in the painting school but the following year Derek Bocher, David Hopney, Patrick Colefield, Alan Jones, all joined the Royal College of Art. She was friends with them, yeah. but she was not at that central point where they were getting support for their work as they moved into POP. So they were getting support from people like Alloway, Richard Hamilton, that generation of the independent group who put together the This Is Tomorrow exhibition. They were getting that support. She was in stained glass, where she was supposed to do reproductions of medieval stained glass. There was no interest in her collage aesthetic. And so it was actually quite tough for her in terms of the work. She embraced student life. She was so vivacious. People recall her wonderful laugh that would reverberate through the common room. She danced down the stage as Marilyn Monroe. She also sang, Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bauhaus with a really nice sort of play on high low culture she was very active in the film club so from that point of view she had a great time and she totally engaged but she was away from the heart of prop and she lost confidence yeah. in her artwork she did carry on collaging and painting at home but her boyfriend at the time jim donovan said that it was only when she had a gust of confidence yeah. that she would let him see anything. Wow. And we've got to remember that we're talking about actually institutional sexism. Yeah, That was the circumstance, but it was that nature of institutional sexism and stuck in stained glass it was not good for her development as a pop artist.
0: Yeah. Am I right to think that actually the Royal College of Art, when it had its sort of architectural makeover, it didn't even include women's loose.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, so she graduated in 1961. I mean, this was the kind of you know the cusp of the British art scene. I mean, when did pop really come to the fore in Britain? And how was then she involved in pop? Because I'm I'm right in thinking that like her first group show was in 1961. It was titled Blake, Bote Porter, and Reeve at the AII Gallery, and was one of the first kind of British pop art shows. She was she was right there at the centre.
1: She was where pop really burst into public consciousness in London was in the Young Contemporaries exhibition yes. set up by the Royal College as a pathway for young students to get into careers. And in the years 60 to 62, it's where beaucher, Phillips, Jones, who were the main organisers, Hockney, Coalfield and so on, were showing their work. And they were supported by Lawrence Alloway and Richard Hamilton in shaping it to show a very male, virile, masculine style of of pop-up. And there was great excitement, especially when it got to 62. Lots in the media, private galleries getting interested. But what is interesting through those three years is that the women from the Royal College of Art were shown in the Young Contemporary Show. Bote had work accepted in Young Contemporaries in 57, along with Bridget yeah. Riley, again oh, in wow. 59. But then when it came to those pop years, the number of women diminished and diminished until, in 1962, the top year, yeah. there were no women at Royal College of Art students at all. Oh my gosh. And with wonderful irony, Peter Phillips exhibits a painting called "Men Only." <gasps> Bridget no. Barlow and Marilyn Monroe.
0: Oh my god! <laughs>
1: so, I mean, they must have submitted. Yeah, I don't believe that Pauline, for whom it was really important that her work was seen and the collages would have been relevant, yeah. but maybe not beer enough. Yeah. Jan Howard submitted a piece which was rejected. It was made of cloth, but she had a tutor, Harold Cohen. She was at Slade, not the Royal College, and he managed to get another work of hers in and as she said that was my road to fortune
0: absolutely but it was just must have been such an exciting time because I urge everyone listening I mean as well as looking up botes exceptional work I mean she as a person was just <laughs> vivacious and electric and starred in this incredible film by Ken Russell called Pop Goes the Easel in 1962 and you can actually watch it if you're in the UK on BBC iPlayer I mean this alongside Peter Blake Peter Phillips and Derek Beauchamp and this incredible film that kind of follows these four pop artists and They are the essence of pop in every single way, the way that they analyse the world. And also, Bodhi totally steals the show as well. And she's so interested. And, you know, her outlook on life, she's literally pop. I mean, can you tell us about what Pop Goes the Easel was in 1962, and what did this mean for her career?
1: It was part of a very highbrow arts programme series by Hugh Weldon. And he invited Ken Russell to do this pop film, which actually annoyed an awful lot of people because it showed them sort of rushing through fairgrounds going to (laughs) wrestling matches you know it was all a bit distasteful to the highbrow audience but it was really really innovative and in it she showed collages and abstracts and her abstracts were responding to 30s musicals. So in that way, it was kind of mass culture. A large part of her place in in the film was that she was acting out a terrifying nightmare. Also, she acted as Shirley Temple singing Good Ship Lollipop. But there she is as, as a sexual grown-up woman with top hat and tails. It's the whole combination of the, the work and the performance. But it didn't really hit the spot if I'm honest of pop art she hadn't really found her full pop voice and after that film was was shown she got a lot of acting work yes whereas the men got a lot of exhibition offers. Oh, really. so it was problematic yeah but it was filmed in January of 62 and during that year it's so exciting she found her pop voice there's yeah. no question she was living in Addison Road one of those big houses in Notting Hill Gate, which she shared a flat with Celia Bertwell, a good oh friend my of gosh, David yes, Pockner, yes, yes. who, who ended up uh, being a very famous textile designer. beaucher had a, a studio in the basement and apparently he used to turn up every day and they would sit together, have coffee and discuss politics. They were both quite left-wing and political yeah. more than the others, and life and art and everything else. I think she found a community at last where she could express her desire in terms of a painter and she does produce distinctly female voice in her pop work right from that point from 62 a unique contribution.
0: So I mean she has this incredible kind of distinct feminist voice I mean what was her contribution to the pop art that really kind of set her apart from her male counterparts?
1: I think to sort of understand how significant it is we need to know a little bit about the cultural place of pop itself They wanted to shake off stuffy, old, modernist aesthetic, all serious and great. (laughs) And for them, there was this sort of exciting transgression in going down into mass culture. But mass culture was gendered female, the woman's world of adverts. But again, for the young men, they rather like the thrill of going down among the women, but it was risky and they weren't accepted at first by art historians and art commentators. In order to get serious attention and acceptance, detachment became a key requirement of pop. And the writer spoke about its formal qualities, line, color, surface, and it was all to be very flat. Now, P- Boaty did entirely the opposite. <laughs> she identified with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. She identified with Bridget Bardot. She wanted to give expression to the subjective experience of women in mass culture. So she talked about a nostalgia for now. the present-day mythology of film stars and fans. But she also very much placed herself with the fans. She she said, our fears, hopes, frustrations and dreams, we can pin them on the star, who shows them to millions, and if we can do that, we're no longer alone. And she says, pop art colours those myths. And so you see it in works that she produced in the 62-63, The Only Blonde in the World, which is now at the Tate Gallery. And there you see Marilyn Monroe shimming across in a still from some like it hot yeah. but each side of her are these big colorful abstracts but it's as though they've been split open and slid apart to give a glimpse through. So we're going yeah. into depth to see Marilyn. So there's a sense of taking us through into that desiring space of the fan and identifying with Marilyn.
0: So The Only Blonde in the World was painted the year after Marilyn Monroe's death?
1: Yeah, she started it before she died, actually, and finished oh, it afterwards. Wow. Yeah, The painting she did immediately after her death was called Colour Her Gone." Yeah. And in this case, the abstract panels on each side of the painting are grey and they kind of seem to be more closing over an image of Marilyn, where she's set against a wall of red roses. Again, that symbol of female sexual desire. She has a red corsage. And it's a really sad painting because she's gone, colour her gone. And the the phrase colour her gone comes from another painting my colouring book which was a pop song at the time which was all about the breakdown of a relationship and the last square is here is the boy colour him gone and my colouring book that painting is absolutely about the melancholy pleasures for the fan you know where you you have a breakup you're terribly upset and you listen to sad pop songs that helps you through so those paintings show this way of trying to Really identify with not standard distance from uh, mass culture, a sort yeah. of very different take from the men.
0: Yeah, the two Marilyn works, *Call Her Gone* and *The Only Bond of the World*, they're just absolutely beautiful. There's something so. I guess kind of relic-like about them in a way I mean especially Color Her Gone it's like Marilyn's wearing a blue t-shirt which we don't kind of often see her in I mean she's looking sort of more casual than normal and it's so personal it actually kind of reminds me of uh, Elizabeth Payton's paintings of people like Kurt Cobain that she Mm. made in the 90s just after his death and I don't know there's something very I guess that angle that you take you're slightly below you're slightly kind of looking up at them and she thought of them as the kind of goddesses of the day and Mm. I love the fact that she's kind of immortalising her just swept up and kind of how she belongs the only blonde in the world looks like kind of cinema screen that's almost closing Mm. in on her or the kind of crack of a door that you just get this glimpse and and she's there and she's kind of striding through this shimmery silvery outfit and and it's just her at her best and it's her how she's seen by the world but then colour her gone is almost quite intimate as well as you kind of feel like Mm. Boti knows her in a way
1: Mm. yeah the image was taken from a cover of town magazine and it was a series of shots as you quite rightly say taken on a beach where she's sort of running around on the wow. beach and her yeah. hair is loose. Yeah. but the other thing that this is very striking is there's a photograph of pauline which was produced in arc magazine where she looks so like that image yeah. all the same yeah. pose mouth everything the identification is, is so close that it yeah. really matters and as i say she was devastated at
0: yeah, absolutely. But I mean, she really engaged with the time. I mean, you know, the years of the 1960s, you know, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have the assassinations mm-hmm. of great leaders. We have the race riots in America, the space race. I mean, Beatles Mania, I mean, you know, so much is going on. But she really seems to engage with the kind of political aspects. I mean, how did she kind of convey this through her paintings?
1: Absolutely. She was very politically conscious and active. She took part in demonstrations. She was part of a leader, actually, of something called the anti Action that did demonstrations <laughs> against poor architecture that was filling the bomb sites of London. She was on C and D marches, handing out leaflets, and definitely had a left-wing socialist view of the world. And of course, Cuba, as you say, that it's all happening in real time. When yeah. the Cuban revolution was successful, she was in her second year at the Royal College, and Cuba was seen as this beacon of socialist hope. So, in her paintings, she did a painting called Cuba C., which took its title from an um, avant-garde film by Chris Marker. Another painting we only know from photographs is called July 26th, which was a key date in the revolution. Imagery of Fidel Castro and others appear in collages and other works. So she was absolutely au fait with and painting that kind of work. So, I
0: mean, 1963 was such a interesting time for her as well. I mean, not only was she kind of engaging with these political subjects, but also she was presenting on the public ear. I mean, she even interviewed the Beatles, but she was also particularly known for these kind of feminist monologues. I mean, can you tell us about these?
1: Yes, absolutely. She had a chance to really get her opinions heard. In the monologue, she celebrated the likes of Belmondo and James Dean for their revolutionary spirit of sexual freedom and so on, but she also spoke with tremendous energy and vitriol and wit, <gasps> critiquing the white Englishman in quite excoriating terms. She also spoke about marriage and the way that women's magazines and women's stories wanted you to buy into the whole marriage thing. But actually, that was not a good idea. You needed to be an independent woman. Oh,
0: fantastic. <laughs> Some of those
1: monologues are really, they could be in Spare Rib 10 years later. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. really strong feminists statement and this is I'm quoting now the golden climax of life a young girl's dream but the more we allow ourselves to think of marriage as the only aim in life the more we allow ourselves to be slaves to domesticity the more we need these stories to convince us that there must be something glamorous in it all which clearly there isn't so you know she was really attacking the, the media but obviously what we're also seeing we go into 64 She's more and more aware of the misogynist culture that she's living in. She talks to Nell Dunn about how men just can't cope with women who are intelligent, who have something to say. And she finds herself playing a part, and of course the part is to listen to men, not not to speak. And she'd married Clive Goodwin in sixty three, having only known him ten days, because she said that he was the first man who actually dealt with her as an intellectual equal. It wow. was willing to accept that she had a brain. And he was very left wing as well, so they shared politics, they shared drugs, they shared life. But on the whole she found increasingly that she wasn't taken seriously and there were less exhibitions and more acting. Almost all the roles were about her looks. So she was the Tart, seductress the yeah the prostitute very trapped into those roles and increasingly she was worried that acting was taking her away from her real love which was painting but this awareness grows gradually through 64 and is expressed in it's a man's world
0: yeah no, it's it's such an incredible painting. It's kind of bulletin board, really, of all these different kind of cultural figures. And it kind of embodies exactly what's happening in the 60s and the kind of range of mass media that pop artists are drawing from. And then the year later, she creates It's a Man's World Too," which is kind of like these sort of pornographic images of women all collaged together, which is very... I mean, obviously she's doing it as a sort of feminist statement, but this is very kind of ahead of her time in a way. I mean, what do people think of these works?
1: Well, It's a Man's World One really shows such a lot about the iconography that Pop is drawing from. But it's interesting that it's her iconography as well. So we have Proust in there, the clever, Elvis Presley as the beautiful, the Beatles. We have Einstein and Lenin. But at the top, we have the palaces of male power with the B-42 bomber. And at the bottom, we have the assassination of Kennedy. So all these things roll together. But I do think it's quite gendered. She's celebrating the range of masculinity that she found interesting and exciting. But in that grid of images is her red rose of desire. But it's trapped in a square. It's really cramped and trapped. And you can see the the clitoral bud at the centre of the rose. But as I said, it's struggling to be seen. And then when you get to It's a Man's World 2, she takes imagery from both from the life class and from soft porn magazines, girly mags. And I think she's making a comment on the way that women are represented in both high and low culture as bodies and as sexual for men. But I think it's a very, very powerful painting because when you look closer at it, the young woman is looking straight out at us with a very wistful look as if to say, what am I doing here? And the standing figure is woven into the representations of collage. I think saying something quite powerful about the way we are all as women woven into that imagery we can't stand aside from it how we see ourselves and how we are seen so i think it's a very very important painting
0: and then i mean she dies in the summer of 1966 when she's just 28 from cancer one of the last works she created was Bum as well, which also just sort of shows off her incredible, like this kind of loud, fleshy surprise that we see on this stage. All of her works just seem so full of life and have this incredible attitude to the world and to comment on the world. And it's just tragic that she had to die so young.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. It was, she fell pregnant in 65. A lump was discovered and she had cancer. She was offered an abortion so that she could have treatment, but she turned it down. Her sister-in-law, Bridget, thinks that it was because of her Catholic upbringing. Caroline Kuhn, interestingly, argues that the men and the people around her should have convinced her that she was important as an artist, and she basically sacrificed her life for the child. And she died on the 1st of July in Warren Hospital. Yeah. But she painted bum when she was very thin, very weak. And it was for Kenneth Tynan's very famous review called Oh, Calcutta. And the idea was to have a series of paintings by Boti of different parts, erogenous parts of the female body that dancers would dance around and so on for the review. Um, but she only made bum. And it's so, as you say, it's so vivid with colours straight from the tube, the bum appears in a proscenium arch. Again, this idea of performativity. And I don't know, I find it a very ambiguous painting because on one hand it's vivid, it's absolutely harsh with the zeitgeist, you know, right there with the happeningness of the 60s. At the same time, it's a rarefied body part, exposed, depersonalised. And I do wonder if there's a mixed message here as well as it's both celebration and critique.
0: yeah. And so, I mean, she died in 1966, just less than five months after giving birth to her daughter. I mean, what happened here?
1: Well, her daughter was brought up by her grandparents. And that's another sad story where she had a very sort of schizophrenic upbringing, really. With her grandparents, they wanted to be the Pauline that didn't go rogue by becoming part of this pop scene. And she was sent to a Catholic school and so on. But she also spent time with her father in, in central London, who was a revolutionary. And when she went off to school, he was, they would leave a raised fist, you know, to each other. And ah. then tragically, he died as well.
0: Oh, my goodness. That's just so heartbreaking. But I wanted to ask, what do you think the legacy of Pauline Bote is? Well, I think one of the really important things, along, of course, with all
1: the other women pop artists who were active and did make names at the time, is that they enrich pop. They expand its borders and they bring it beyond that very monocular male view. So it's a tremendous contribution to art history in the sense of expanding poppets. But I think also she has enormous relevance to now because by bringing together the intellectual ambitious artist with the sexual woman and refusing to have those two divided, I feel it speaks very much to a current generation who are trying to negotiate an ever more media saturated and pornified culture. And what she's saying is that we can both occupy that sexual position as serious artist and celebrate mass culture whilst also critiquing it. So I really value, and I think it's an important legacy that she reaches across generations of women to speak to now, And also that as a collagist, she forms a wonderful continuity from Hannah Hoch at the beginning of the century to Sarah Lukash and other artists, Stella Vine as a painter, who are all dealing with this image of the young woman and how do we deal with that? It's a wonderful story that we can pull out a different female history, a female story, a female legacy.
0: Absolutely. And what do you think she's taught you?
1: Oh gosh, I think exactly that actually. I think for me, it's been quite a journey following her through this. And I think initially I was worried when she had herself photographed naked with her work and so on. I thought, oh, it's risky. You shouldn't be doing that. And then gradually I got to see that what she was actually doing was saying no it's okay we can be both sexual and intellectual as men have always been especially male artists and to give ourselves permission to be complete humans not divided in that way either the sexual woman or the intellectual person to reunite those and I think that's an important message for now and it certainly is something that I've learned
0: Absolutely well Sue thank you so much for this incredible incredible insight to her career I mean you've just done the most marvellous job just you know reclaiming her resurfacing her and putting her out into the history of art and you know, I think more than most artists in the 20th century, she speaks to an audience now that is ready for her work and, you know, is ready to sort of put it in the light that it deserves to be. But as is the Great Women Artists Podcast, we always do ask our guests, mm-hmm. if you ever had the opportunity to meet Pauline, would there be anything that you would have said to her?
1: Yes. I think what I do want to say to her is she struggled with depression in the last years of her life and she wasn't sure if she was doing the right thing. And I would like her to know that after a 30 year gap, when her work wasn't seen, she is now absolutely back in visibility and is saying important things that we need to hear now and that she is making a tremendous contribution to our culture today. And I'd really like her to know that.
0: Oh, well, Sue, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: It's been a real pleasure and an honour. And thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to the 55th episode of The Great Woman Artist Podcast with the brilliant Sue Tate on the extraordinary Pauline Bote. I am just in awe at Bote's work, life and story. I mean, wouldn't this be such a fantastic film? And I urge you all to look up her work and also her amazing role on Pop Goes the Easel, which you can find on BBC iPlayer. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes below. This episode was sound edited by the absolutely brilliant Laura Hendry. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us and of course thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artists podcast with me Katie Hessel.